Hey, so good to see you again. Uh, it's been so long. I honestly just feel like this lockdown has been so much longer than the first one. So I'm delighted to see uh, you in person again. Um, I felt like Ian's comment on haircuts was a personal attack. Like, look at this mop. It's just terrible. I, I think it's 26th of April. It's uh, in my diary. <laughs> um, I wonder if you've ever had a Saturday night like this. You, you sit down with your wife, your husband, your kids, uh, you order a pizza, it comes, you get the remote, you open Netflix, and you start scrolling. And you keep scrolling. And your husband's already eaten half of his pizza, and you're still scrolling, and the anxiety's rising, and what are we going to watch? And you choose one, you say, this looks great. And then your wife says, oh, I've seen it before. Okay, we'll keep going, we'll keep scrolling. You get to another one. Well, I read an article online, said it was kind of close to the bone. Let's give it a miss. You keep scrolling. You're starting to get agitated. You just shove the remote to someone else's hands. Like, you choose. There's too many. I just want to eat my dinner. Your dinner's cold. It's terrible. By the time you choose a film, everyone's eaten. You're not in the mood for it anymore, and you decide just to give it a miss. I've had many evenings like that. Um, we live in a world of choice overload, right? Whether it's just choosing a film on Netflix, uh, whether it's uh, shopping online. Uh, I read this week that if you type hangers into Amazon, you get 200,000 different options. And I, I don't know what the difference is between any of them. We're burdened, right? You go to the supermarket and you go to choose shampoo and you think... But the ethics of this one, how well will this one work? What about the smell? There's like 500 choices of brands. We're burdened with what sociologists call choice anxiety, where even when it's a choice between 100 good things, we are just overloaded and paralyzed and we don't know what to choose. And that's a trivial example. Politics has become more polarized than ever, right? The right and the left both accuse one another of like gnawing away at the fabric of Western society. Protests and demonstrations uh, and outrage just feel like a weekly occurrence now. Much of that is good, but because of that, I think we just have this sense that our actions have like immense consequences and yet nobody can tell us what way to go, how to do the right thing. Even religion has become a kind of consumer marketplace. If you go online, it feels like every two minutes there's an article, here's the new way you need to know to unlock the Bible. There's seven uh, beliefs on every uh, doctrine, and there's endless infighting in the church, and sometimes we can just feel like we don't know what to choose, we don't know what way to go, we don't know what's right. And... Um, the neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, he, he says it like this. He says, our brains are busier than ever before. We're assaulted with facts, pseudo-facts, jibber-jabber, and rumor, all posing as information. Trying to figure out what you need to know and what you can ignore is exhausting. In other words, how on earth do we learn to muddle through the noise, stand in the middle of a anxious, consumeristic, overloaded culture and not be caught up in it all? Well, the Bible's answer is the gift of discernment. 
We're, uh, we're continuing on in our series called Gifted to Go. We've been looking at some of the gifts that God pours out on His church to build us up and help us as we go into the world and bring the light of God with us. And uh, this, mor- this afternoon, we're moving on to the gift of discernment, or, or what's sometimes referred to as the gift of distinguishing between spirits, distinguishing between teachings, good and evil, uh, and all sorts of other things. And um, before we dig in, why don't I just pray for us, and then we'll get started. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present in this room with us. I'm going to pray that you would fall on us now, Lord, that we would have our eyes open to the truth of your word, Lord, that we would see the world as you see it. But I just pray that um, as we come together and look at your word, that we would be formed into the image of Jesus, that we would leave here more like him and more in love with him. Would you do that by the Spirit for your glory, God? Amen. Amen. Well, we, we kind of asked off the back of that kind of Netflix story, how on earth can we muddle through the noise? But before we get to that question, the sad reality is that the problem's much worse than Netflix and shampoo and politics. For Christians, we believe not only that we have choice anxiety, but that we live in a world that is enemy territory. We live behind enemy lines as what the Bible might call frontline outposts of God's coming kingdom. All around of us lie challenges, um, but I think that to set the scene for how important discernment is as a gift, we've got to get behind and see what, what is it that's going on in the world uh, in which we live. And so I think we just quickly look at the book of First John, um, and, and John in this letter, he speaks specifically to this thing, right, the, the, the nature of living in a world that is already being filled with God's kingdom and yet is still living in darkness, the already not yet kingdom, we might say. And so just for our kind of purposes today, we'll look at what John calls the world and what he calls the devil to give us a backdrop to set this gift against. So we look at the world first. Here's what John says in 1 John 2.15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. First glance, sounds like a kind of call to disregard the planet and, you know, not care about climate change and all these kind of things. But for the writers of the New Testament, the world doesn't mean the earth. The world signifies the system of thoughts, values, social norms, and practices that mark a culture that has redefined good and evil away from the Word of God. So to be blunt, much of what we would call culture, the Bible would call the world. Much of what we think of as just opinions, the Apostle John would call the world. So, for example, when we speak of the world, we're speaking about a kind of survival of the fittest uh, capitalism in which it's profit over people all the time. We're speaking of expressive individualism, of you do you. We're speaking of sexuality redefined outside the boundaries of a marriage between one man and one 
women. We're speaking about these things that are just knitted into the fabric of what we call culture. Now, the main thing for us to know today is that the world gets inside of our bones, right? James K. Smith, he's a, a philosopher, he calls this cultural liturgy. That's where they kind of accepted practices and norms and beliefs of the day that we live in. They, they disciple us into not the image of Jesus, but into the image of a different God entirely. So number one, the world. And we define that as the system of thoughts, values, social norms, and practices that mark a culture that has redefined good and evil away from the Word of God. So that's the world. And then John also speaks about the devil. In 1 John 5, 19, he says this, that the entire world is under the control of the evil one. Now, we just need to be honest with each other that that's not comfortable. We don't like to believe that. We're happy with Jesus. We're happy with God, but we don't want to reveal that we believe in a devil. But a Christian who's not aware of the devil and the demonic is leaving themselves so open to being compromised in their faith. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he writes from the perspective of like a senior demon giving his nephew advice on how to lead people astray. And one of the things that he says is that the devil's main strategy to affect the Western church is to convince them that he doesn't exist, to kind of lull them into a false sense of security. And that's the devil's primary strategy today, to convince you he's not that big a deal, he's not real. And so we have to sit upright. We've got to kind of take notice and, and get real together and say that, no, that the demonic is real. The Bible is not being metaphorical when it speaks of the spiritual realm. So what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the devil? Well, it speaks of a real being, a real being whose whole purpose of living is to rob God of glory and convince you that God is not good. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. First story we have of the devil is him in the garden of Eden whispering to Eve saying, your way is just as good as God's. Did God really say? And his strategies haven't change. Just like if war breaks out and propaganda is put out on both sides to confuse and disorient the enemy, uh, Satan is a propagandist. He's on a disinformation campaign in our world. Satan and the demons that are under his power are on an all-out assault on you and your faith and your confidence in Jesus. And the world and the devil come together to make us ask that question again. Did God really say? The world and the devil come together to um, distort our vision. To make us forget who Jesus has said he is. And as we follow Jesus together, we, we do it. And we need to know this, that we do it surrounded by the ideology and values of the world and by genuine spiritual forces that want to lead us away from God. I wonder if you remember when 3D movies became uh, really popular at first, and you didn't have the kind of cool-looking sunglasses you have now. It was these paper glasses with the red lens and the blue lens. And I remember 
at the time thinking it was really fun halfway through the movie to take the glasses off and it was like really, you know, really cool. <laughs> um, but you'll remember, if you take the glasses off in a 3D film, right, it's fuzzy, everything's disoriented, you can't see what's going on, it's out of color because the film is made to be seen through the glasses. Right, it's not, it's not optional. And in, in the same way, our world is made to be seen through Jesus. It's made to be seen through the gift of the Spirit. And so the gift of discernment is how we peer through Jesus. The gift of discernment is how God helps us to see the world come into line. It's how we step into the reality of having what the New Testament calls the mind of Christ. Richard Foster says that discernment is given so that we can see through into the realities of life. See through into the realities of life. Just like a kid in the cinema, no idea what's happening, but then puts on his glasses and it's crystal clear. God has given us this gift so that we can see in Jesus what is true and good and worth chasing after. So what does the gift of discernment look like then? Um, that's a kind of background as to why we need it, but what does it look like? Well, I'm going to pop a few verses up on the screen. We're not going to dig into one passage today. We're just going to do a kind of survey of a few uh, verses, and uh, as I read these, they should be uh, behind me. First one is 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one is given wisdom... And Paul goes on, knowledge, faith, healing, powers, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 8, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Last one, Philippians chapter 1, 9 to 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let's just pull out a few kind of threads from these different verses. Um, the first one is that discernment is about goodness, not about evil. If we look at that last passage again, it says, we should be discerning so that we may approve what is excellent. And I hope you see there that the gift of discernment is angled towards the good. It's angled towards what is right and true. Often in the church, the word discernment becomes a code word for pointing out everyone's faults all the time, for saying, ah, you just, ah, I'm just so discerning, I know that your heart's not right. Or discernment bloggers who spend all their time talking about how everyone's a false teacher but them. Discernment is not about what's wrong, it's not about what's evil, it's not about what's false, it's about what's true and good and worthy of our attention. Hannah Anderson, she wrote this brilliant little book on discernment, and uh, she says this in that book. She says, we become innocent of evil, not 
by preserving ignorance, but by becoming wise about what is good. In other words, we, we don't spend all of our time focusing on the wrong things, focusing on what's not true, focusing on the devil. You know, we spoke about how important it is to know that he's real. Equally as important is to not spend all our time thinking about the demonic. The gift of discernment is about seeing God in the midst of our broken culture. The gift of discernment flows from our belief that God is good. And in the words of the psalmist, that we might see the goodness of God in the land of the living. The gift of discernment stems from our Christian commitment to the reality of a coming new creation, to our holding as hard as we can to the fact that even while this world is broken, we know that we can see something good of God while we wait for the perfect to come. So that's number one. Discernment is more about beholding God than it is about running scared from the devil. Second thread we could pull out is that discernment is about a transformed mind, not transformed opinions. Uh, a few years ago, I got chatting to a friend of a friend, and he was a really gifted writer, and he had been given a kind of side gig working for Lonely Planet, and uh, he started to write kind of travel blogs for them online. The catch of the job was that he had never been to the places he wrote about. So I would go around to my friend's house, and this guy would be in his room, just like researching a random city in Norway, and then writing a thousand words about this place. And you could read the article and be, you know, quite convinced that he knew what he was talking about. He had coffee shop suggestions and all the best attractions and all this kind of stuff. But if you dropped him in a random street in Venice and asked him to get back to one of the attractions he'd wrote about, there is no way that he could make it. If you got him to have a conversation with Joe and they started getting chatting about Italy, Joe would find out in about three seconds flat that this guy is not a local of Venice. He knew plenty of facts, plenty of facts. He could fill an article with facts, but he didn't know the place. He didn't know it like a local would know it. Discernment in the same way is not about knowing lots of facts. It's about knowing God. Living a life of wisdom and discernment, it's not about getting our opinions in check, making sure that we toe the nice Christian line, that we make the correct, respectable choices all the time. Life is far too complex for that. We don't have the space in our brains to have a list of all the good decisions we could make. Things will come at you in this life that you don't even have a category for. We need something more than rote memorization. We need discernment. And if we trade in discernment for a list of opinions, we will just become consumers. Become people who have all the right respectable things to say but can't navigate this world well. In Romans 12, Paul puts it like this. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. Because we can't plan and order our lives, even day to day, hour to hour, we don't know what's coming. We have to become people 
who can spot good, who can spot evil, who can spot truth or lies when and where they present themselves. We have to become people who can take the meat and leave the bone. We have to become people who have a transformed mind, a wise mind, not just a transformed list of opinions. The last thread we can pull out, discernment is the precursor to holiness. In our uh, verse we read from Philippians, Paul gives another reason to pursue discernment. And this reason is that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Then in Ephesians, Paul says that we're to become people who discern what is pleasing to God. In other words, becoming discerning is the first step of becoming morally mature. I don't know if you've seen the documentary Free Solo. It's about this climber, uh, Alex Hanold, and uh, he essentially what he does is with no ropes, he climbs these huge cliffs uh, all over the world. And uh, Free Solo, the film, is about him tackling El Capitan, which to climb with ropes is one of the highest achievement of any climber's career. El Capitan is 2,307 meters of sheer cliff face. And uh, Alex Hanold decides to tackle it just with his climbing shoes and a bag of chalk and nothing else. And so the film follows him as he kind of trains and, and tries to do it. And there's a really interesting scene in the film where he gets an MRI scan because they're genuinely thinking, what is wrong with your brain? There's something wrong with you. We need to scan your brain. And it turns out that his amygdala, and the amygdala is the kind of fear center of our brains, like regulates risk. His amygdala essentially just doesn't work. So he has no sense of risk. He sees this 2,000-foot wall and doesn't think, I might fall off. He just thinks, oh, that would be fun. When we try and navigate the world without discernment, it's like trying to navigate the world without an amygdala. We have no sense of what's good for us. No sense of what's pure and wise and good. We just do what feels nice. Now, Alex and Old's kind of amygdala achievement. He makes it to the top, by the way. He doesn't fall and die. He, uh, he's still alive. Um, it was admirable. It was great. He'd done amazing. He trained and he got up. But the moral equivalent just leads us into disaster. The book of Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man and it leads to death. See, discernment functions as a kind of moral fear center, a spiritual amygdala that keeps us within the boundaries of what God has said is good. It, it teaches us what road leads to death and which road leads to life. As we become people of discernment, we will resist the world's redefinition of good and evil. We'll honor what the world calls worthless. We'll enter into the heart of God who is pleased to use the foolish things to shame the wise. We'll enter into the life of Jesus who flipped the moral world on its head through his teaching and life. And we'll walk in step with the Spirit who turns us into people of love and peace and purity. Discernment is the first step to becoming a person of love. Now, all that being said, the question that we need to finish on is how do we become 
people of discernment? How do we get more of this gift? And whether you're gifted with like a specific gift of distinguishing between spirits in a spiritual sense, or you're just like everyone in this room trying to navigate the mess of this world, how can we practically become more discerning? Here's four ways. I'm just going to rattle them off. First is that we ask for discernment. We have to start at asking with all the gifts. It's called the gift of discernment for a reason. We can't conjure up becoming people of wisdom. It's not something we develop. It's not a skill. Discernment is a gift. We have to ask for it. King Solomon changed the world by asking one question, saying, God, make me wise. Give me wisdom. And God answered him. The book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote after God gave him wisdom describes wisdom as a woman crying out loud in the streets. I'm right here. Come and find me. The message is that all we have to do is to take God at his word and ask. Book of James says that anyone who lacks wisdom, ask. And God, who is the giver of all good gifts, will freely and happily give. So first, ask. Second, get into community. Like all the gifts, we're called to practice this in community. First Corinthians said that the gifts are given for the common good. That means two things. It means, one, we shouldn't hoard our gifts to ourselves, and two, we should expect to be encouraged, challenged, and changed by the gifts of others. So, we become more discerning by getting up close and personal with other people, specifically those who are different to us. Here's what Proverbs 13.20 says. It says, walk with the wise and become wise. The companion of fools suffers harm. Now, that's not to say that we only mix with people that we think are really smart and wise, but it is to say that it is so important that we don't just think we know it all, that we rub shoulders with one another, let each other challenge each other, that we take advice from those who are further along in the journey of faith. So ask, get into community, prioritize worship. I, uh, I read once that those who are experts at spotting kind of counterfeit checks and banknotes, they front load their training with just studying the real thing. Study a real banknote so intensively so that when they see a fake, it just stands out to them really easily. They have this natural ability to spot them. Well, the same is true of discernment. We don't become people who can sort the good from the bad by not gazing upon the good. We need to know what good looks like. So to become people of discernment, we have to make worship and prayer and being in the presence of God the number one priority of our lives. We need to get up in the morning and gaze upon God. We need to gather together and sing and pray and worship Jesus. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know who God is as he's revealed himself, and we need to know it inside out. It's the most foolproof way to spot a counterfeit God is to know the one true God inside out. The best way to spot a false spirit is to be deep in communion with the Holy Spirit. 
when we know him, we will spot a fake a mile off. Ask, get into community, prioritize worship, and memorize scripture. In Acts 17, there's this group of Jews called the Berean Jews, and Paul is teaching to them, and it says that they tested everything that Paul said against the scriptures to make sure that it was from God. Even the apostle Paul was fact-checked. Everything tested against the Word of God. How do we become that kind of person? Well, if you, if you gave me just one hour, if you told me an hour and a half ago, you're preaching in an hour, the finished product would be stuffed full of two things. One, football illustrations. Two, C.S. Lewis quotes. And that would be it. It would be a ping pong between football and C.S. Lewis. Because I love football and I think C.S. Lewis was a genius. And those are just the two things that overflow from my mind. If you pressed me to speak that quickly, out would come football, out would come C.S. Lewis. We need to become people who, when we're pressed, the Word of God comes out. Right? My mind just is on the same track as C.S. Lewis. It's like, oh, I remember what he said about that. We need to become, maybe I need to become, now saying that, people who our minds are in track with the Word of God. Right? Our minds are aligned with what God said. Let's become people who, when we're pressed down, God's word comes out of our pores. When we get into the Bible, we learn to think as God thinks. We learn to see the world as he sees it. So those are four practical ways. How do we grow in discernment? We ask God, get into community with one another, we prioritize worship, and we memorize scripture. Let me finish this way. At the end of uh, George Orwell, or George Orwell's little book, uh, Animal Farm, and uh, Animal Farm's this kind of political allegory about farm animals overthrowing their masters. And uh, at the end, some of the animals are looking into this building. They're watching the, the old owners discuss kind of the terms of this new and better farm with some pigs. And uh, there's this quote at the end. It says, the animals outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. How often do we look from church to world, from world to church, from church to world again, and have no clue which is which? How often do we look at the church and just think, man, we are just like everyone else, Friends, the gift of discernment is a gift given to make us like Jesus. The call of the gift of discernment is a call to conviction, to stand firm against the compromise that we see everywhere, to stand firm against the lies of the devil and the ways of this world. And it's a call to cling to what is true and good about God. Let me pray for us to receive more of this gift today. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you is only truth, in you is only life, in you is all goodness and purity and joy. Lord, we want to see more of you. Lord, we want to look out at the world and 
and not feel that it's a confusing mess of beliefs and opinions, God. We want to know the will of God. We want to live as people who are uh, fashioned into the image of Jesus, God. We, we want this gift of discernment. So, Lord, we just pray now that your Holy Spirit would be making us people of wisdom, people of discernment. Lord, I just pray for those of us that are aware that we have believed some of the lies of the world, Lord. I pray that we would change course. Lord, I pray that we would repent, that we would leave behind the things of this world and come into deeper communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In your name, amen.